0: Welcome to the Matthew Moran Podcast. Here you will find a series of in-depth conversations with the world's best nature photographers, filmmakers, conservationists, editors, writers and publishers. You will get an insight into the lives of creative professionals and industry experts. What goes on in their minds, how they approach their work and how they make it pay. The podcast also looks at the role that photography and filmmaking plays in helping to raise awareness about the global plight of species. And despite the depressing statistics, we look for solutions at what we can all do to contribute to conservation. All my guests give up their precious time and are incredibly generous of spirit. So this is my chance to share these conversations with you. So sit back, relax and enjoy. This week, my guest is Charlie Hamilton James. Charlie is a photographer, filmmaker, and presenter who covers a broad range of subjects from wildlife and conservation to indigenous communities living in the Amazon. Now a Nat Geo Explorer, Charlie specializes in highly technical photography, going beyond camera traps and remote shooting, often opening them up, tapping into circuit boards to capture the most challenging of subjects in new and innovative ways. As a kid Charlie was obsessed with kingfishers and otters and at the tender age of 16 he worked as a camera assistant on David Attenborough's Trials of Life. Despite his glittering career in TV and film, Charlie always wanted to be a photographer and is now a regular feature contributor to National Geographic magazine. We caught up at Charlie's place in Bristol to talk about rats, the problem with obsession and why you can't complain about being a National Geographic photographer. this is it charlie thanks so much for taking the time we're sitting in your lovely flat in bristol and first and foremost i was always curious to how national geographic photographers lived well
1: it's the kind of i mean i haven't done the washing up my table is the headboard of an ikea bed i mean it looks like a toilet door doesn't it (laughs) and uh yeah no, it's just a load of crap everywhere so that's how we live
0: yeah you've got your own prints on the wall we were talking about earlier
1: yeah I just had that done and uh what did I get I think I've got eight done big ones I like big pictures. I don't like small pictures yeah I like big pictures and also just
0: for everyone listening this is not about your ego wanting to see your walls covered in your own work you just said to me earlier that you just enjoy looking at nice pictures
1: yeah I mean I I take photos primarily for me (laughs) I know it sounds completely self-indulgent but my life has been spent in pursuit of what I consider to be perfection and of course you never reach perfection but it's a personal it's like a personal journey I'm having with myself to get images that that kind of hit all the notes and, and are as close to perfection as I can get them. And that personal journey means that I'm only really interested in doing it for me when it comes to aesthetics. I'm not talking about, you know, um, doing editorial work. I'm just talking about the aesthetics of an image. And I've been doing, you know, my whole life has been doing this. So when I get a picture I actually like, which is rare, yeah, I want to sit and look at it
0: that's great was it always like that I know you you, you talk about kind of editorial okay so you've got a brief and guidelines but you know early, early on I think we're trying to find our place and mm-hmm. thinking about shooting for a certain magazine for example or trying to tell a story in a certain way were you always very disciplined of shooting for yourself aesthetically
1: yeah because I I started I mean, I only started taking photos um, because I got bored of watching Kingfishers from the hide and figured I had to do something other than just sitting and looking at them. That's why I started taking pictures. And then it became, immediately it became a a pursuit to get good pictures of Kingfishers. And that, you know, and then that moved on to Otters. But it was all about, for me, it was all about getting those those images that are just as perfect as I could get them, you know technically compositionally emotionally everything else and it's always been like that it's, yeah. it's just been about trying to achieve something and a lifetime of frustration because i failed <laughs> 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 i think there's only one picture i look at and think that's perfect and everything else is not perfect
0: so you have read
1: I mean, no no <laughs> i've read to me it's not to any I mean, in fact yeah. most people don't you know wouldn't second glance at it but to me it's everything is right
0: what is it describe it
1: it's a guy um doing a skateboard trick in venice beach and i there was a moment i went into a zone in my head and i and i turned and i saw this image and i i had a little leica with me at the time and i turned and i took the picture in this kind of weird zone, I've never been in before, and I've never been <laughs> in since. And and, the, and just and it just it, everything was just perfect. The stars aligned. It's funny because it in yeah.
0: in looking at lots of content of you online and other interviews, etc., you talk about not really being a spiritual person, but it sounds like that was kind of a spiritual moment.
1: I don't know. I don't know if it was. I think it was. Oh, I know. Just channeling my inner bresson. <laughs> <laughs> um, I met you a
0: couple of months ago at our book launch, and um you said you hadn't traveled for a couple of years. I mean, obviously COVID's had a big impact on that. So what what have you been doing?
1: Uh, I've been in um well, I, I mean, I've been to Shetland i'm filming some otters. Um, uh, but no, I haven't, I mean, I missed out the whole of lockdown. I was in, I started isolating in in santa barbara in california for a few months and then i i was in tanzania and kenya for most of it um so and then when when i got back it was kind of the end of all the lockdown um but i you know i just i was just burnt out basically and i thought i need to just not work constantly so i've spent i mean i've barely worked for the last year and i'm running on fumes now um And you know, I'm about to start traveling again, but yeah I've actually really liked not traveling.
0: Yeah. And yeah. is that is that because you're are you good? Well, it sounds like you weren't, but is this because you're also saying no to things that come up? Or is it, you know, you're talking about it just taking some time off? Presumably there is demand out you know, there is work demand out there. Yeah. I- the reason I asked I've just because I've just, you know, I interviewed Will um last week and we were talking about that skill of saying no
1: yeah i mean i say no to
2: everything
1: <laughs> no but look i got i'm very i'm incredibly lucky i've got two careers that i can i can work in i can work in television i can work in print media well national geographic i don't really work outside of that um so i can take on filming jobs and our, the tv industry is just booming the last few years like it's never done before there's so much work um but no, I don't. I don't. I don't want to do it at the moment. So I'm just. Like, I'm. I'm looking at how much money I've got, and how long I can keep going without <laughs> earning anything, because I don't want to. Yeah, you know, I just. I feel. I started working on the Attenborough series when I was 16. I've just worked my ass off my whole life, and now I don't really want to. And so I'm. I'm very lucky in the sense that I can. I mean, I've got no money. So I'm not lucky in that sense. I mean, because I, I spent all my stupid fault. But I'm lucky in the sense that I can choose the stories that I'm really passionate about because I'm really, really bad at doing things that I'm not passionate about. Sure. And so I choose. You know, my, my next story for Geographics on cows. I'm really excited about it because it's a fascinating subject. And, you know, I tell people, and they just look blankly at me. It's like, "Well, are you doing that?" But to me, it's going to be an absolutely amazing story. So I'm, I'm getting excited about that already, and I'm not going away for another six weeks.
0: Is that how it works? Well, for you, I'm sure it works differently for different photographers. But your relationship with National Geographic is about also pitching stories, as well yeah, as them and, coming to you with stories.
1: Yeah, and it, yeah, cows is my story. Um, uh, These I- ca-
0: cows in the UK. No, this
1: is, a, this is a global cattle story. Okay. It's a massive, I mean, the second largest footprint on the planet. You know, yeah. It's a massive story. So I'll go all over the world and do it. Um, yeah, no, it kind of works. both. Sometimes they'll come to me. Uh, sometimes I'll go to them. It just depends. Yeah. And If I'm on contract, which I was for a long time, I can't say no. But so <laughs> like, like they ask me to rest. And I hated rats and I just kept saying no. And then eventually they said, well, you're doing rats because you're on contract, (laughs) no choice. (laughs) No choice. I loved it. It It's one of the best stories I've I've ever done. I just loved shooting it. Um, So yeah, but if I pitch a story, it's one I really want to do. Um,
0: I watched quite a bit of that, you know, the behind the scenes stuff you were doing with the rats and you seem to really, you know, you're doing a lot of anthropomorphizing and hanging out with your buddies in New York because you referred to them. But, yeah, it looked, I mean, it looked like a great, fun
1: project to do. Well, I love New York and I love, I mean, I was hanging out with George, my assistant, and we're just, you know, like nine ten at night until 7 in the morning. We'd wander around with, you know, our camera bags. We'd look for rats and then we'd get our deck chairs out and start photographing. <laughs> it was just fun.
0: Yeah, it's the kind of city where you can do that kind of thing. Yeah,
1: where and you, get, you walk, can order people- a pizza <laughs> at 4 in the morning and some bloke will turn up with it on a motorbike to the street you know i would be sitting on the bottom of broadway photographing rats this guy would turn up with a pizza <laughs> so, and it's on expenses you know it's the dream
0: <laughs> so they 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 pick their photographer wisely to do that story in the end they knew
1: that you you you'd deliver well they're, they're funny i mean they want they don't always want to i mean you get you'd get typecast um and they don't always want the typecast person doing the job because they want some people to bring you know more flair or sure. a bit of this or a bit of that it was from another sort of discipline but some jobs i mean i'm a very technical photographer so um wildlife photographer so rats are kind of perfect for me because it's a it's a really technically complicated thing to shoot um so they bring me in because i've got that skill set that suits it yeah and
0: when you say technical just kind of broadly speaking that's you know lighting Camera traps, remote triggers, that that kind of thing, and
1: yeah, like okay, so we got the we were at the bottom of Broadway outside TGF Fridays, and there's a drain which is just heaving with rats, <laughs> and the bars in the drain are, what well, they, forty eight mil wide, I think, and I want to get a camera, I want to get shot down that drain, so. You know, I go we I go to Adorama, buy a camera with George, and we're like we're looking for a camera that's forty that's less than forty-eight mils wide, basically. That has its own flash, that has a HDMI interface, that has a a remote trigger interface. So, and we eventually find one, it's forty it's one millimeter bigger. I can't remember exactly how big. Oh, my God. And it's a Sony and it was like seven hundred bucks. <laughs> and we go back to the hotel room and I just rewire this thing. I've put, you know, optical slave units on it. I've got a monitor. You know, this, this this tiny little camera is just covered in wires coming out of it by the time I finish it. And then I'm gonna force it through the, the gap in the drain. And of course, it's a ha, millimeter ha, too big. Half a mil each side. <laughs> yeah, so I completely scrape, destroy the screen, almost ruin the lens port, get the camera down there. And then I'm you know I'm sitting on this on the sidewalk. I'm sitting there on the pavement with a monitor. Um and a, a shutter button, watching everything, and I've got a studio light that's uh, you know above the drain, uh, and it's being fired, being triggered by the tiny little flash on the camera via the slave. You know, it's a really complicated system that you can't buy off the shelf. you got to make it with a soldering iron and some gaff tape and a leatherman in your hotel room, and and I so yeah, I get to do jobs like that, and a lot of the sort of Freshwater work I do is the same. Everything's made by me to order. I hate using engineers because they overcomplicate the crap out of everything. I want to do it really cheaply and efficiently with a leatherman and a and, roll be, of and be in charge of it as well. Yeah. So when it goes wrong, I know how to fix it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So. And is that is that you? Do you know like from from the outset because obviously you've got these images in your mind that that's what you need just to get that like elevate that shot just marginally is that something you think about when you're approaching like technically difficult subjects because obviously it's, it's very easy just to you know grab a long lens and be above yeah. ground and not to have to have those issues but are you thinking about always trying to elevate a scene or a subject
1: yeah I mean I, I actually rarely use long lenses most of my work's done between sort of 24 and 100 mil um and what I'll do is I'll go. Through, I'll just sit on Google. I just go through every photo that's ever been taken of a rat. Sure. I think right. Okay. now I'm going to do better because, <laughs> so, as I say, I'm on my own little journey. I'm not trying to show off or prove to anyone. I'm just to me. Right. I'm going to do better than that. And how am I going to do it? Now, the, it's not just tech. The technical just gets me where I want. the The kind of storytelling and the emotional part is what I'm interested in. How How do I take a subject? And present it to an audience in a way that not just tells you the story of the subject, but gives you an understanding of how that subject exists and how we see it. So when we we're doing rats, for instance, there was a shot on to get a shot of, you know, the opening, you know, the opening double page for the story, All right? If you were walking down the streets of, of, um, lower Manhattan at night, you're going to see a rat, right? How's it going to look to you? So I, you know, I did a very complicated shot where the rat runs through a little bullseye of red light with white light and it's running through the sort of this bullseye that I made on the pavement out of flash guns and it's silhouetted and you've got the cab going past and there's the bins and the skyscrapers because it, and it's shot from a higher up angle. The human eye view. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, this is what a rat looks like to you when you're walking along and that's that's how i'm approaching the subject i'm not like i don't want to go and just photograph a rat i'm not into the subject to me isn't isn't the image i'm not trying to document a rat i'm trying to create an image that tells you something about what a rat is how a rat lives and how it interacts with you and its environment i guess
0: but then presumably the story you know about uh, an animal that basically everyone including yourself hated before you did the story and i'm sort of applying that to okay, you know, we did this book on foxes and mm-hmm. you're trying to show it in a different light. And again, using different techniques and getting technical about it to try and get good shots. And then to be able to communicate to people, Hey, look, you know, not all foxes are, are pooing on your doorstep for fun yeah. or tearing up your rubbish They're, You know, that rubbish is a human problem. It's not a fox problem. Mm-hmm. And so was that also kind of part of the brief, I know you talked about trying to show them in beautiful light and just also, you know, get some emotion going with some of these pictures. Yeah, no, I'm
1: not trying to win anyone over. No, no. <laughs> I, I, I am not a massive fan of rats. Yeah. You know, you can think what you like about rats. That's not my job. My job is to show, is to try and r- basically recreate what I'm seeing to the audience. Not, I don't care whether they like or dislike rats. In fact, the fact that people dislike so many people dislike rats is why the article is so successful. Um, but yeah, it's it's just about to me, it's about playing with complex, technically complex visuals to, to create something artistic.
0: So we were talking earlier a bit about your work in the Amazon and you've spent, yeah, numerous years, particularly in in Manu mm-hmm. National Park. Um and yeah, watching some of your videos, I think your approach and the things that you were talking about just really interesting in terms of going to these places and you know not exoticizing the communities and uh getting images that I, in in a sense like you were describing about the rat real images of real mm-hmm. people living day to day and that, that's a hard thing to try and transcend especially if you beholden to a magazine that wants to sell magazines how do you go about approaching that in the first place
1: well I, I and i never had any interest in people <laughs> when i was growing up i was just not interested in people you know i liked animals and the reason i was in manu was because of otters i was filming otters there for years for the bbc and i kind of i drifted into i mean i get called an anthropological photographer now which kind of irritates me because <laughs> i was i never were i never wanted to be i know i still don't have any aspiration to be known for photographing Indigenous people, yet I do do a lot of work doing that. And I think uh, one of the reasons I'm, I guess, successful at it is because I do, I haven't gone in with a load of romantic preconceptions of who these people are. I never really cared who they were. <laughs> They're just people to me. And, yeah, they do live extraordinary lives, but so did everyone. You know, we all live extraordinary lives. They just live slightly different lives. To us. And so I think very early on in my kind of work, certainly, and and in fact, Manu was really the first work I did with Indigenous tribes. It was more about exploring the similarities we have than the differences we have. Um, And I think because, you know, what I think what most journalism does is to exoticize. Um, and certainly indigenous people, is to exoticize, to romanticize and exoticize, and is to exaggerate difference. And I think you make people very inaccessible to a reader when you exaggerate the differences we all have. Um, I learned as a filmmaker, you know, I worked um making films and trying to get an emotional connection between a, you know, like a Mayfly and, and the viewer. You to me, that was okay, that was a a skill I had to learn, and I, I basically I plan, applied what I'd learned from that, which is okay. What makes us all similar? Well, struggle does, Um, and you know, success from struggle, and and and, mis- and falling over and making a mistake or being imperfect. So I, I kind of got all these things that I've been working on for years, trying to understand, and I started applying it to my work in the Amazon, and basically looking for the for the common threads we all have in our lives. And yeah, you might be a you know, a nine-year-old girl with the monkey on her head living in Peru, but what's your what makes your life common with our life? And if I can find the things that join us together, um, I think people are more engaged and they're more inv- emotionally invested in understanding about other people, rather than just exploiting, I think, is the word and exaggerating the differences we have. And almost always that's done for a picture editor a commissioner or the journalist's own ego going back to your time there one of the things
0: that i really enjoyed watching and reading about was your approach in going to live with these communities to better understand them and how first of all how long did you do that for and what came out of the other side of that i mean it was was it to try and take more authentic images or was it just purely to understand and so you could therefore empathize more
1: no do you know what that was most of that that early work i did i, I say i did with humans because i had never been in the amazon and taken any time to invest or understand you know humans and social issues in the amazon that all started when we made a bbc series bbc 2 series called i bought a rainforest and i would bought this um plot of what was it 100 acres um as a rainfall I bought it over the phone actually um <laughs> and it turned out to be an illegal coca plantation and we went out to start making this film about it and we realized that the guy who logged it and owned a coca and worked that area his daughter was um severely disabled and my job was basically to go out and chuck him off the land <laughs> when he started telling me this I'm like oh god and Gavin, the director, just points the camera at me, and goes, you know, as as in fact, his wife is crying, telling me about her disabled daughter and that we can't kick them off the land, which I'd bought to protect the national park. I've been asked to buy it by the national park. And Gavin, the director, turns to me and says, You still gonna kick them off the land? And I'm like, Well, of course, what sort of bastard would I be if I did? And so like early on in the filming, I've got this um, massive quandary. Yeah. So I bought this land to protect the national park. I've been asked to buy it by the national park to protect against illegal loggers. The worst illegal logger in the area is living on the land with his disabled daughter, and the only way they can fund their existence is staying on my land and logging. So what the hell am I going to do? And it was Gavin, the director, who then forced me on this journey across the Amazon to go and live with um, illegal loggers, gold miners, slash and burn cattle ranchers, we went and lived with tribes, so that got cut out of the show in the end. Um, and we did all the, you know, and, and actually invested time, not just turn up like Prince Philip and comment on it. It was like, a, <laughs> okay, you're going to live and work as a gold miner for two weeks and you're going to actually do it. And I absolutely hated the idea. I thought it was the worst idea imaginable. Um, and, but Gavin was right. He he was He absolutely destroyed me over six months. And he turned me in from, I guess, someone who was slightly right-wing into what the Daily Mail described as a whinging liberal. <laughs> that was actually my, actually my email signature for years. It said, "Charlie Hammond James, the whinging liberal." The Daily Mail. I'm so proud of myself. <laughs> and but the thing is, what it did is it, I I realised. Firstly, I I started to understand the problems that the Amazon faces. And I started to understand them through the common humanity and common humility and understanding of um, the pressures and needs that we all have to su- survive and support our families. Um, and the idea that you could be an illegal logger with almost no money trying to survive in this enormous infinite resource and not actually use it seemed absurd. And and so that the... the the dichotomy started to unravel and i I started to see the people as people instead of as good guys and bad guys
0: and you start to unlearn everything that you've been told your whole life about yeah absolutely i
1: think you know the more i understood the less i understood was kind of how i saw it um and i and i i i mean i maintain this idea now across all the work i do i never um i never cast anyone as a villain in conservation anymore because you can't because they're pressure we don't know their pressures so i try and i mean that changed me a lot in the sense that i try now and present um two sides of the story sure rather than just this is awful and it's these these poor people over here yeah are screwing it up for us so, yeah. so is it the idea that you can just just you know berate people trying to survive on the other side of the planet yeah <laughs> from yeah. the comfort of where we are you know it's just it's so it's absolutely absurd to me
0: and this is what I really enjoyed hearing about and it certainly make my ears prick up because you don't often hear people talking about conservation being this bourgeois, concept. bourgeois yeah concept. yeah but it's true I think and I was telling you about you know my mate who worked for Fauna and Flora for years in Vietnam and same issue, you know. You, how do you tell a poor person to stop going in the forest and mm. hunting, you know, rare monkeys to to feed their family? It's a it's a complicated issue.
1: Yeah, and if actually if you look at most of the world's protected areas, they are surrounded by poor people, and we ignore those poor people. Are in peril basically. Um, we don't invest in them, and we just shit on them and shout at them and have a go at them when they do stuff we don't like. Yeah, and that's you know it's just profoundly wrong so i guess what i'm trying to do in my own little way is just give more balance to it you know i put some pictures of um on my instagram feed a couple of days ago of bird poisoning in um near lake victoria in kenya a story you know I, it's a story i covered pretty extensively and you know i wrote at the bottom you know yes this is awful but you know we all need protein Where does our protein come from you know, and there's, there's all these people have got to get some protein. Um, and, you know, the global need for protein is enormous. So it's, you know, it's very easy to think. And I, you know, I go through the comments, people haven't read it, you know, these people are so evil and they're not. <laughs> they're just trying to get some protein. Yeah, I'm sure some of them are, but some of everyone's, you know, there's evil people, that you know. It's just, it's just to survive a lot of the time. Yeah,
0: and I think it's also rich, especially coming from, well, the UK, where nature, wildlife is so depleted here. We've hunted everything out. We used to have bears, wolves, yeah. lynx roaming these lands. And, you know, you look everywhere. I mean, look at now the issue with river pollution, for example. It's just it's just appalling. And then to expect, yeah, other countries. Yeah, we expect others. I yeah. think
1: we do, yeah. I mean, it's just a bit more compassion, isn't it? And I think, you know, actually a lot more compassion would solve a lot of the world's environmental problems, but we don't we allow it to get politicized and we allow um black and white thinking to get involved dichotomy thinking and that just doesn't help
0: do you have any experience of you know these you know positive conservation stories through your work and if you don't you're talking about i mean it does make sense that if we show more compassion it can help solve the world's problems but how does that How do we then take that idea on, and deal with issues like you know most of most of the edges and buffer zones of national parks are surrounded by poor people that are not allowed, or Mm -hmm. in some cases they are, of course. But how do you? What's what's what are your thoughts, and you know what's the fabulous outcome here?
1: Well, luckily, I did a story on Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique, and Gorongosa is fascinating because if you look at old school You know, colonial models of conservation—they're based on ring fencing, and that's the—you know—basically, you take everyone out, like the Serengeti National Park. You basically push everyone out to the edge, and you just ring fence and protect that area that's important to biodiversity and wildlife. Um, and a long time ago, that was a—you know—an obviously awful way of managing humans within a landscape. Um, What we face now is that that is the only way <laughs> of protecting certain areas because there's so many people and the pressures are so enormous on the landscape but what Gorongoz has done is actually said okay well we're gonna we're gonna basically create a economic you know we're gonna create economy in the buffer zone and it's the buffer zones that are so important because they're the migration routes they're that they're where the poaching happens you know there's All the interaction between the human world and this protected animal world happened in the buffer zone. Um, So what Gozer is doing is investing heavily in the economics, and that means um, creating coffee projects, creating cashew projects, so basically creating tourism opportunities, any, any industry basically. But the other thing they're doing, which is I guess the key thing they're doing, is they're investing very heavily in women's health and education of women so if you can educate girls from a young age to the same and to a higher standard you know but to the same standard the boys are getting educated because often the girls are pulled out of school early if you can keep them going through um you know school until they finish the, the birth rate drops and the birth rate has to drop You know, it's it's a lovely idea that we can all just keep breeding all over the world, but we can't. Especially, I I know you know, in in places where it's unsustainable, it's unsustainable for all of us. Um, So what they're doing is they are basically investing heavily in in jobs, education, health of women, and as a result, it's already having an effect. The population's coming down a bit, but. Importantly, the health and the happiness of the people is going up, and the protection of the ecosystem is improving. So, we, you know, it's so positive that everyone can just basically work together to make it, you know, to make it work rather than having draconial, draconian colonial ideas of forcing people, which is still going on all over the world. People being forced out, place, you know, the huts are being burned, and people are still being kicked out. And there are no real easy solutions, but Gorongosa is one sort of very progressive and I think the most progressive national park that I've seen. The flip side of that is it's been funded by pretty much by one man.
0: Right. I was going to
1: ask that about yeah. you know, where does that
0: money come from? Where does the structure come from in terms of education programs? and?
1: Yeah, I mean, Greg Carr, who, Greg was a um, computer tech, guy out of boston actually came, he lives in idaho um he's a lovely guy very very forward thinking um and he was taken on by the head of uh, by mozambique president to head up Goza and he's i think he's put over 40 million of his own money in and that's the kicker you know yeah. this that's it you're creating this kind of dream where everyone can work together but it's extraordinarily expensive it takes incredible philanthropy yeah,
0: yeah. but <laughs> otherwise it's a it's it, it's a good model and i think you know where it's it's easy to be a cynic it's easy to be skeptical but to see that working firsthand is you know is i guess it's
1: rewarding and yeah but i mean what really you know the obvious thing is is that with so much money sloshing around <laughs> in the world it's just all in the wrong place <laughs> and greg came along and thought oh i'll I'll, I'll put my money in the right place Uh, and you know we could we could do all these things so you know none of these problems are in we just choose not to and so that's that's the real you know cynicism of it
0: we were talking at earlier lunch about you failing catastrophically at school um but having this dream as a 10 year old boy of photographing for national geographic which you've been doing now for a number of years and i was curious to, to sort of find out what it was like and there's a, a a bit of a backstory. and i used to play the drums when i was at school with my mate jack who went on and he's he's a pro drummer now and he's tours the world he plays with bonobo he was just at glastonbury this weekend and, you know, I remember this crappy drum room that we sat in at our school <laughs> in North London playing this beat up old set. And I thought, often think or thought about, you know, if I told him then, like, you'll be touring the world, you know, he would have chewed my right arm off for it. But actually, the reality is, you know, he's away from his family a lot. You know, it's a pain in the ass. Yep. And, you know, it, it's that whole, and I guess now as well with the prevalence of social media, it looks, like a real dream, and I know you've written about it. So you want to be a National Geographic photographer, but do you allow yourself some? You know, do you look back at your ten-year-old self? You know, well, I've done pretty well. I've kind of lived that dream as I imagined it when I was
1: ten. Um, mm, uh, I guess half and half. I mean, I always say success doesn't make you happy; it just makes you busy. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, from the outside, my job looks amazing. And as a result, I never moan about it to anyone but the people closest to me. <laughs> <laughs> because you can't, you know, it's it's so extraordinarily privileged my job that you, you know. You, yes, it is it, it is really hard sometimes, but on a uh, relatively sure. Um, do you feel pressure when you go out and shoot stories? Yeah, yeah, I do. I feel enormous pressure. You know, I always kind of joke and tell people when they're getting their first assignment, you know, it's the most exciting thing in the world. You know, you just got your, you your first assignment from National an Geographic, and then you just going to cry for two months in the field. My first assignment was otters. I had three months to shoot otters, and I went to Shetland, and it rained almost every day for two months. It was just—I <laughs> didn't enjoy one bit of that assignment, and I still really struggle with some assignments. I just did chalk streams in, you know, in, in Dorset, and Hampshire. And I thought it'd be a lovely way to spend two summers on these rivers that are just the most beautiful things in the world to me. But I have not really enjoyed that assignment at all because the pressure to, is the pressure to go out and create, well, I, I always, it's like alchemy to me. You, you know, I get up in the morning. I make coffee. I put my camera in my bag. I go off somewhere, and I got to come back with this lump of gold. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it's like it's really hard. And it's not just got to be a lump of gold like other people have done. It's got to be a really shiny piece of gold. <laughs> and I and it I, I, the stress of that. fine. but it's only personal. Yeah. You know, I well, it is personal, but it's also coming from the fact that I work. You know, they they demand high standards. Yeah, sure. But I demand higher standards of me. And so, yeah, I, I find it stra- – I never really relax when I'm on assignment. There's a point – sometimes there'll be a point where I've got it in the bag. I'll be like three weeks in, into a four-week shoot and I'm like, okay, I've got this now. And then I'm like, oh, I can chill out a bit. But there's usually a photo that will be a, a tipping point. You'll get an image that is you just that is – that is good. You're like, okay that's a, that's a hell of a frame yeah.
0: <laughs> okay now i can relax. and being so technical is that is that usually a planned image or can you be still pleasantly surprised about something that comes up during those few weeks yeah absolutely
1: you can but there's often I, i'll often have an image like i chase images so i remember there's i was doing vultures and i started seeing on a few frames this blood drop while i was while they were feeding and then i'm like okay i just i absolutely focus in on Right on a head covered in blood with a blood drop. And I will shoot tens of thousands of pictures of vultures lifting their heads out of the carcass just to get that. And the thing when you start doing that is once you've committed to it, that's all you do until you get it. And then then you're basically you set a timer because you have to take the risk. And when you take the risk, your life, your your assignment becomes even more insecure. In case you don't get what you were doing, you end up you end up with nothing. And if you don't take the risk, you you're going to end up with mediocrity. So, yeah, yeah, and I, and
0: just judging that from assignment to assignment, I guess that's also whilst it's stressful, we kind of all of us we seek a little bit of a thrill in our work. Yeah, I um, got, you, it's
1: yeah. A, it's really weird actually. There's a as I've got older, I've become more risk averse. Um, when I'm shooting and it hasn't i don't think it's paid off necessarily and i don't know why i just haven't got the like the emotional energy to take as many risks as i used to
0: maybe you're getting better no i am just getting old and neurotic you've also been doing a bit of writing which is i know it's a, a a double challenge for you you're talking about all the challenges and not wanting to do anything mediocre but um you struggle with that you struggle with focusing on anything for more than 20 minutes so um
1: yeah no i got i i got i got diagnosed with adhd the other day i don't have the age <laughs> <laughs> and if you met me you probably wouldn't think i have but getting that diagnosis was it was actually very um relieving
0: yeah weight off your shoulders and
1: yeah because i you know i left school when i was 15 I got three GCSE. You know, I got woodwork and English language and English literature. And I only got the Englishes because To Kill a Mockingbird was on TV the day before the exam, and I watched it. And the exam happened to be about it, so I was <laughs> I was really hopeless at school because I couldn't I just couldn't sit and concentrate. It's why I can't go to the theatre. It's why I can't do so many things still, um, because I don't have the ability to concentrate for very long. It's why if I go to a party, you know, if I go to a wedding, I'll offer to take the photos. The last thing I want to do is take the photos, but I can't do small talk because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, just, it's like it's like claustrophobia to yeah. me. Yeah, my brain's just whirring all over the place, so I can't do it. Um, and then, but the other thing is, is that writing, I just can't write without medication <laughs> 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 so i just spent four and a half years writing a book it's so painfully slow my god But i've done it it's finished oh it that's brilliant because yeah. i looked it
0: up like I, I remember reading about it a year or so ago i looked it up to see if you'd done it and it says a, a amazon says it's coming in 2023 i don't know whether that's the case
1: I, yeah, it's coming out next spring. But I just rewrote the whole thing. I've, um, I mean, I—that's the, the other thing—is I just keep—I read it and I'll, and, and I'll, if I'm getting bored, it's like this has got to be rewritten. So I just—I just rewrote the entire book. And what about yeah? Because
0: I went on this writing course a few years ago. Because I struggle with it. I mean, it's not a, yeah. such an attention issue for me. It's just because I don't think it reads very well. But and it was a, just a one-day course. But I took away this brilliant nugget of information that if you write and you're struggling with it seems counterintuitive but the thing to do is just to continue writing even if you think it's crap and you don't go back and start editing two paragraphs just write 20 paragraphs and then you go on the journey and then you can kind of get in the zone was that what it was like yeah that's how I work yeah yeah
1: no I just write and then I I actually I quite like this the second part of that which is the going in and then I go in with a scalpel and I yeah, i think okay i've written that paragraph that's crap but now i'm going to restructure it and rewrite it. and i'll go through like three four five sometimes really fine edits mm-hmm. of a chapter and do you, do, you do
0: that yeah i was going to say do you do that before you send it to yeah your editor who is a friend i've forgotten his name
1: oh uh, no my yeah. editor is actually um works at harper collins um miles archibald and he's the head of the sort of, natural history department there and then trevor Dolby is my agent. And uh, very close okay. friend. Yeah. So
0: he's the one that's been going through the essays that you've been. Yeah, and yeah. Trevor
1: Trevor, I knew Trevor because he used to work he used to be head of Harper Entertainment, which is the entertainment wing of Harper Collins. And he um once asked me to write a book. He he needed a spoof on the Matrix. <laughs> he needed it in three weeks' time. <laughs> and I'd never written anything for him. He phoned me up and said, Can you knock out a spoof of the Matrix for the um Waterstones? Basically, wanted to sell at Watson's at Christmas because the second Matrix film had come out. And so I wrote him a spoof on the Matrix. And I said, The Matrix. It was called The Matrix because the guy in it couldn't say his R's <laughs> properly. And I, I knocked it out in three weeks and it sold 40,000 copies. again <laughs> okay, nearly
0: got the best sellers list. That's hilarious. And you spend all this time writing a book that hasn't been published and then you rewrite uh, it. And well, <laughs> hopefully it'll reach that level of success. I hope so. Well. It's very
1: naughty. Yeah.
0: And what what about your um your your essays that you you started last year?
1: I oh, I also I need to get the book finished. Yeah. So I, I Yeah, I, I enjoy writing the essays. I kind of like to deconstruct things, uh, including myself, and I'm happy to do that. So I kind of I I, I write a lot about how photography is I I guess I write a lot about photography, but I, and my interest in actually is how photography what what photography robs from us. In um, experience, I think more now than ever before, um, this idea that we capture, we actually ruin our experience of the world by trying to capture it.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, that,
0: that's happened. I mean, so, yeah, so many personal experiences of that, particularly looking down a long lens, you just get this tunnel vision and that obsession to get what, in the end, is probably not going to be a very good photo yeah missing a really good experience
1: absolutely turning a family holiday and a trip to the beach into an instagram picture just, it just ruins us yeah we always <laughs> but it's true it's just like oh i can put that on the gram oh yeah. wait till the lights but, you know it's, rather than actually in, indulging and investing in in the experience yeah we we would... try and capture the experience to kind of present our life like a bumper sticker to everyone else rather than actually just experiencing it yeah and we're all guilty of it except those people who don't use instagram (laughs) but i know i am so i so i'll sit and pick that apart and i you know to the point where i'll say okay so i'm going to put my i'm not going to put my i'm not going to do it i'll put my phone in my pocket i'm going to experience this and then every time the light comes out i'm like I just, <laughs> just the guilt then sets in and i'm like feeling guilty that i'm not photographing and it's just, that phone is like burning a hole in your pocket yeah and it really annoys the crap out of me
0: but yeah and i guess it was it would also be easy for people would say oh that's you know that's your work charlie you know you, it's easy for you to say well no and, that's what i say that's how <laughs> i
1: justify. i watched a guy once drive i was standing on the ice i used i like photographing people doing selfies i spend a lot of time doing it And I was, I was doing a story in the Serengeti and I was standing on the edge of the Ngorongora crater and you drive all the way up the hill from the gate and the first pull out you get to is just the most extraordinary view of the crater. I don't know if you've seen it. I have. It's
0: mind-blowing. Yeah, 20 years ago, but
1: yeah. And I watched this guy drive up, get out of the car. He spent two minutes doing selfies and getting his driver to take photos of him. And then he got back in the car and drove off. And I thought... He's now going to present to the world his extraordinary experience. But he didn't have an extraordinary experience. <laughs> he's going to present the complete opposite of what he's he actually did. He's going to say, look, I'm adventurous. I have this amazing life. I'm deep. I understand nature. I'm an adventurer. And actually, he's none of those things. Yeah. He's just a guy that got out of the car and totally indulged in himself for two minutes before buggering off <laughs> And so the presentation is the opposite. Yeah. And what did he actually miss? Well, he missed everything. I know. It's, it's one of the great views in the world. Yeah. We should all go back to film. <laughs>
0: <laughs> then you wouldn't have that instant gratification. No, you're right. That but it's that, awful yeah, stuff. I <laughs> know it is. Hey, that we all desire so much. I mean, you, you know, you're really playful in a lot of your... Instagram posts and some I'm just of, stupid.
2: Well, some of your
0: essays, you know, picking apart yeah. the the hero photographers with their cameras and that they're they're saving the world, and it's um it is it is a big problem in in social media and watching it, and also just uh, yeah, just trying to gain followers, be the next whoever to have this sort of stardom, and in many ways. You know, people might view you as someone being there, but you're a bit like, well.
1: well. Well, I mean, what's interesting about photography is that it's the photographer is now the currency more than the photograph. And that's what's really interesting about it. It didn't used to be like that. Um, but now the, you, you the person, are the currency. And yeah, you've got to take some reasonably good photos to do that, but they don't have to be great. It's more about how loudly you can shout about yourself. Yeah. And how many followers you can get, and then I think there's a very balanced line to be taken between uh, with that because you know personally I don't I don't want to be a major self promoter I find it offensive I find overtly showing off offensive I don't like like you know just because we're British (laughs) It's it's not the same in the states yeah sure it's acceptable in the states but for me I would rather. Just kind of tread the right balance with that line equally it is um it's my business and it is how the business works these days I can't ignore Instagram it is how it works yeah and if I write a book and I'll sell my book and I've got three hundred thousand Instagram followers great yeah I also like being stupid and I've got an audience to my own stupidity now <laughs> 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 and it's funny you know, I sit and i I'll be writing captions sometimes I was, of fossil hunting my son and charmer a couple of months ago and i'm sitting in the car crying laughing and he's like dad why are you crying i'm like i've just written this instagram (laughs) it's like my photos i'm laughing at my own jokes more than anyone else in my own stupid little world and i love that the fact that i can i can sit and make Myself laugh till I'm crying, and then I can as my own little joke, and then I can put it out into the world, and oh, people seem to like it. My, my my Instagram feed is just getting more and more stupid, <laughs> and then occasionally I will whack them with some you know hardcore conservation stuff, but generally it's just an, it's a vehicle for me to be stupid and have fun. Yeah,
0: and I think it is it is refreshing because it's the it's the anti-hero stuff, and I love. Recently, you posted that great shot of all your hard drives with masking tape on them and cables and talking about your really sophisticated real, file yeah, <laughs> yeah it's your, it's your sophisticated filing system it is real and i think actually probably why that's funny is because it resonated with most photographers
1: well i think yeah this is a thing i i remember chatting to bertie gregory about this before bertie became stratospherically famous <laughs> i love bertie um we had a chat one day about presenting on screen and i said look bertie my my advice is absolutely just be yourself and what so many wildlife presenters do and were doing and continue to is present themselves as perfect and you know invulnerable and perfect and to me it's like if if you want people to like you and follow you on your journey like Bertie then We'll just be you, because you're fine. You don't need to be anything else. Yeah, and, and we crave that kind of connection. Absolutely. Yeah. We were, you know, people think, oh, i a Nat Geo photographer. They must have this extraordinary life. I don't. You know, my, look at all the crap. In the, I'm done the washing. <laughs> yeah, my it's, sink's blocked, so I can't. <laughs> <laughs> it's in a bit. I've been a... trying to unblock it all morning. You know, I just live in squalor half the time. <laughs> and, yeah, my filing system is a bunch of hard drives, and I live in chaos, and I can't. I can organise a piss-up in a brewery, you know. So I'm, why would I present anything but that to the world?
0: Yeah, sure. And it's great. And I think we're talking about the social media for the positive size and the power of the, the reach that it has. And obviously with Nat Geo, it's got just the most incredible reach. And going through some of your videos and talks on YouTube over the past week or so, you know, you, I noticed that they get whatever a few thousand a few thousand views maybe 10,000 views but if you do a video of a bot fly being removed from your head you get 13 million views you know what what do you think that says about us as a as a species
1: uh, that we like watching st- I, so i'd rather <laughs> i'd rather watch a bot fly being pulled out of someone than some worthy conservation lecture because uh, you know we don't have an attention span anymore and we want to be shocked. We want to be entertained. I want to turn our brains off. So yeah. Uh, interestingly, the botfly diaries was much more popular than the flesh eating diaries, <laughs> which garnered almost no, <laughs> follow- no view. <laughs> it was so disgusting.
0: Oh my goodness! You're, yeah, I encourage anyone who's not watched Charlie Hamilton James botfly diaries. Yeah, if you're unless you're squeamish, of I course. i <laughs> um, I was curious about. You know, we talked a little bit about se- success and what that kind of really means. But what m- motivates you now? And how do you kind of go to bed at night satisfied? And what quanti- how do you quantify success for yourself?
1: That's interesting because I have no career goals anymore. And it's very hard to motivate when you don't have career goals. Uh, I, I still want to i still want to work in conservation photography for the good it will to do but i'm also not someone who inflates how good how much good that is yeah i'm i'm very aware of um you know photos yes they can be powerful and sometimes they are powerful but you know as we discussed earlier they are just a small part of a much bigger movement um and i'm i'm I quantify that and qualify that to myself all the time so yes i i think i do a job that's reasonably valuable um but i'm under no illusion that i'm achieving or doing anything other than that and and that's just raising awareness and raising awareness is a phrase i hate because we know we've the, ra- the awareness has all been raised we don't yeah. need any yeah anymore um so yeah i, I i'm struggling with um, that in a sense, I don't really have much inspiration to do anything at the moment, which is why I'm not. <laughs> <doing> <laughs> which is why you were free for this interview in the first why, place,
0: okay. which is why we're here. <laughs> do you still, are you still uh, obsessive though? You know, you, you, do you still have that about you? Do you think when you're sort of honed in on a subject? No, do you know
1: or- what I'm learning to just, you know, it's very, it's very destructive being obsessive. Um, it's extremely dest- for you and everyone around you. Um, I'm learning to not be that. It's really weird. I don't, like I spent my whole life just wanting to photograph otters. I don't want to photograph otters anymore. I spent my whole life trying to photograph kingfish. I don't want to do it anymore because I've, I've got to this point in my life where I've kind of done everything I really wanted to do. And so I'm sort of rudderlessly going to the gym and drinking coffee and trying to find something that will, get me excited again and and my next geographic story is usually that yeah and cows i think is the is the thing that's going to obsess me for the next 2 yeah. years and i'm really happy with that because that is a massively important story that doesn't mean to say my coverage of it will do any good but it is a hugely important story and um that yeah i'm i actually got excited 2 days ago about going off to Brazil to start in August yeah "Yeah, okay I want to do this
0: that's good I think underneath the the jokes and the cynicism it's I think it's great to still have you you feel it in your gut don't you and you get passionate and excited about getting out in the field and being somewhere different yeah trying to capture great shots that you have in your head and
1: well I'm and also I haven't been I call it on the road it's a terrible phrase but I haven't been on the road for a couple of years yeah and it, that, and, and partly because it's a very addictive experience and it's very hard to come down from and it's far too easy to spend your life living in this endless world of excitement and adrenaline where you never need to come down and then when you do you kind of crash and then you, because you crash you have to get back on the road again <laughs> oh, and and I, I, I I love it I love that experience but I haven't had it for, for you know a year and a half whatever it is and I need to just in, you know that's why you won't have to stashing. watch some
0: crap TV when you're back here right
1: I, that's all I do yeah I get back and I just turn my brain off and then go away again and
0: with that story like you know that's so that's a it's a two year you've got two years to get these images to tell this story how do you go about can you break that down just briefly in terms of how you start and What's the midpoint? How you hope to wrap that? I haven't story? got a clue. Yeah. I haven't done no. We so
1: before we do a story, we do a coverage plan, and we haven't done the coverage plan yet. Right. Um, but but bes- yeah. presumably, the target things are you like things like methane, carbon footprint,
0: land use. Is that? Is that? Yeah, yeah. but also
1: culture, history. Yeah. and You know the effect that cattle's had on indigenous people across the world. Biodiversity loss, predator control meat dairy consumption it's not and the other thing is i don't want to go out and just make everything bad sure i got i've got to tell a balanced story you know i'll go and photograph rodeos or bull fights and you know i have to try and understand two sides of a, there might not be two sides of the story but i have to i have to understand it through other people's experience of it and, and what it means to them rather than what it means to me so yeah okay it's gonna it's inevitably gonna be skewed in one direction because you know cattle have and continue to be hugely detrimental to the planet We can't pretend that they aren't so yes it will have that i'm, I'm not going to say bias because it's not a bias no, but it's, it's a more fact. A nuanced yeah it's a. I mean it's a fact okay so they are detrimental to our planet it's not an opinion <laughs> yeah so um how and why and tell some human stories because human stories are how we get things across much better I think than just boring facts so my job is to whittle out what the human stories in all of this
0: well we really look forward to seeing that unfold and getting some more good humored nature you know I'll
1: just cry my way through
0: it Well, you talked about stress doing, you know, three, four week stories. Oh my God, two years.
1: Well, I guess you've. Well, well, (laughs) no, it's not two years. They'll all be like three, four weeks. I don't even know how much. I'll probably only get 12 weeks in the field. Right. Okay. You know, that's how it tends to break down. Some stories you get six. Serengeti was 26. I had two years, 26 weeks in the field. I mean, that was massive. (laughs) But no, this will be 12, 14 weeks in the field. Brilliant.
0: Charlie, thanks so much for taking the time. And um, yeah, no, look forward to. Seeing what happens, and um, with your trying to mellow your obsessive side, it'll be interesting to see <laughs> how, how the images are reflected in that. But um, yeah, no, I really enjoy seeing your work and and love your stories. And I, yeah, I hope you get writing some of these essays again. We've got an audience waiting with you know bated breath. When are you oh, gonna? I'll
1: get on with it. Yeah.
0: Cheers. Thanks so much. Cheers. Big thanks to Charlie for his time, honesty, and refreshing approach. And it will be really exciting to see the cow story unfold over the next two years. And if you don't follow him on Instagram already, you can do so on at c james. That's c hamilton james to see some amazing images, great behind-the-scenes content, and lots of messing around too. I have got lots of exciting guests lined up in the next few weeks so please stay tuned share this podcasts far and wide and i do this for free all my guests give up their time for free so let's spread the word there's some great content in here and we will keep it going all the best